The Athletic. Hello there, listener. It's me, James Richardson. I'm going to be back with you soon with a regular crew doing our nightly Totally shows for the upcoming Euros, for which there are actually a couple of preview podcasts coming your way next week. For all of that, though, why don't you have a bang on this, our interview with our good pal Pat Nevin, whose new autobiography, The Accidental Footballer, is, rather coincidentally, literally out right now. And it's a very entertaining read as well. Asking the questions here is my very good friend, Matt Davis-Adams. And in the words of one warrior poet, he goes deep, so deep, on Pat's career and his life on and off the pitch that, well, probably it'll keep you from your sleep. Anyway, enough of my yakking. Over to you, Matt Davis-Adams, with the very lovely Pat Nevin. Uh, Pat, many thanks for joining us today. Uh, we'll get to the, the book momentarily, but but first tell us tell us a bit about the process of, of writing this and getting it out during a pandemic, because uh, that was quite a challenge. It was, um, but the way I, I did it was very unusual, I think, for, certainly for people that play football. Somebody just annoyed me one day and I sat down in front of a, and if you've read the prologue, you'll understand. Um, and I just sat down and started writing and it flowed out. I hadn't really looked back, but I didn't go to a publisher. I didn't speak to anyone. I didn't tell anyone I was doing this. I just started writing because I've always kind of fancied getting roused to it. So the pro, that was the process of how it was written. And then I thought after about 120,000 words, I hey, wait a minute, I better show this to someone in case it's rubbish. Or <laughs> and uh, anyway, Monterey uh, looked at it, uh, great publishers, um, particularly Jake, who's there, and he said, I like this. Uh, and I said, I, love, and, and I think books are supposed to be harder to put together than that. <laughs> so that save was easy. But then it was, uh, I can re-edit re- it to make sure it, it read as well as I wanted it to read, uh, which took a little bit longer. Um, maybe, so it only took three weeks to write initially, which is incredibly quick. But then after that, I really took some time in it and made sure it was right and juggled it about a bit. Um, but that was still well over a year ago. This book was finished and it, I'd edited everything and got it in place long before the pandemic started. And, and this is a different planet we were on then. Um, so that was that done. Um, but then publisher said, you know, getting it out now is, is tough because it's in the pandemic. There's problems with warehousing and all that sort of stuff, all the technical stuff. And then uh, they delayed it. And it could have been out last Christmas. It was ready. Um, and then it was another delay about eight weeks ago. They just said, no, we're, we're not, not putting it out yet. We're going to wait till the pandemic's finished and people go into bookshops because this is a bookshop book, which I took as a compliment. <laughs> so that's what they've done. So it's, it's it's out now. It's been out for about 10 days. And uh, it's been a bit of a relief. And by the way, of course, this is the stupid part. Of course, I've now finished part two. <laughs> now the part one's out. <laughs> uh, but it's it, that that was a process. Seemed a long time. But in the meantime, I was still doing all my work and traveling and collecting more stories. Music, obviously a big influence on your life and a big theme throughout the book. It's quite a punk way to do it, isn't it? Kind of DIY, you know, you, you write it yourself, you get stuff done and then you get other people on board with it. Oh, you're good, Matt. Oh, <laughs> you are good. <laughs> exactly. And, and you couldn't actually put it more precisely than that. And actually nobody else has kind of said that to me, but you're absolutely 100% right. And remember back in the days, there was the kind of fanzine culture. That was music, then football as well. Um, but the punk ethic of do the thing, make the work, 
and then if people like it, you put it out. And then if, if it's put out and people then like it, then you get to go and do another one. There's no big corporate thing behind it. There's no nothing more complex. There's no advertising campaign massively. It's just I talk to people I like, and if they pass it on and they like the book, then that's good. And that is a very, very punk stroke, post-punk ethic. And that does fit in with music because musically, I, you know, I've had lots of loves of music in my life. I've got Catholic tastes in many ways, but I'm kind of more known for, you know, the kind of post-punk and all the kind of left field John Peel stuff, etc. which is a, a deep love for me anyway. Yeah, and we'll get to that. But I've got to say, I was amused. All the chapters are named after titles for songs. The fact that you picked an ABBA song for one of them just greatly amused me. There's something about you listening to, to ABBA that, that seems quite abstract and, and really tickled me. <laughs> There's a couple of ones thrown in there for specific reasons. There's one thrown in there for my daughter. Uh, so I could I could say that to her, but I mean I, I'm, I'm not a music snob. I mean I I, I will openly say it. Abba are wonderful pop singers you know, and writers of pop tunes. Um, Amy Winehouse is in there, which would probably raise a few eyebrows. But yeah, absolutely, what a gorgeous, fabulous, amazing voice and talent, you know. So, but yes, I will. I managed. They, they probably those two probably replaced Crispy Ambulance and something else. <laughs> But it, it was I, I didn't want to just be completely and utterly out there. And also a lot of a lot of the tracks are reminiscent of the time. And that kind of helps. I kind of wanted it to be subconsciously while you're reading that chapter, almost have it as an earbug and, and you think and it comes back into your head a wee bit as you're reading it. And it, of people of a certain age, they'll think, Oh yeah, I remember that. And it, it helps bring the time back. Uh, that that was my thinking anyway. Yeah, and there's a list of the song titles and the artists at the back of the book, which means that you can make a playlist out of it um, if if you so minded. Um, it's not it's not braggadocious at all the book, but I was really struck by the revelation that you could do ten thousand keepy ups by the age of eight. I mean, a can you still do that? And b it, were you doing that from age two to to get to ten thousand uh, at the age of eight? Do you know the other thing? A lot a number of people have asked me about that, and it just surprises me because if you can do a hundred you can do 200. And if you can do 200, you can do five, then you can do a thousand. If you do a thousand, it's not actually skill anymore. It's just concentration. It's nothing more than that. You don't have, you're not diving at it to try and save it. You're standing there bored, senseless, hour after hour after hour. So I did it for you. I did it because I wanted to know how to do it. And as soon as I'd done that 10,000, the funny thing about it, keeping that for 10,000 was, my dad watched, then he went away for his lunch and then he came back. <laughs> I was getting away and we'd done it up the park. And when I got to 10,000, I just kicked the ball up in the air and walked away. Didn't look where it didn't look where it landed and said, right, I'm never ever going to do that again. What I'm going to do is learn a lot more tricks. And I learned to keep up tricks. And you would call it freestyling now, wouldn't you? But I, I did lots of, sort of freestyling stuff when I was younger with the football. Um, there's another story in the book where that comes in very, very handy. You know, it's jumping forward which, in a piazza in Rome <laughs> when I was skint and I needed some food. And of course, those skills can come in handy. Yeah, when you when you wowed a crowd and got some money to feed you and your mates. Um, th- those kind of skills, obviously, that was a lot of practicing on your own. But but your dad was massive in, in terms of developing you you as a footballer from, from when you were young. But, but what comes across is he invested so much time in you but he doesn't come across as a pushy parent at all. And, and that that's an incredibly difficult balance to strike. I think it is a lot. It's very difficult. I learned so much of, of my dad. And, I mean, there's some great stories about him. I mean, 
the Neds, as we would call them in Scotland, try to kick us off a football park. Bad, bad idea, guys. Um, but also, he, he did it because he loved fitness. He loved being good at things. And the most important thing is people do it now and it's to become a footballer, become famous or get wealthy, right? And that's absolutely fine. None of those things that crossed my mind or I would imagine my dad's that much. He quite liked his to be good in football and certainly wanted me to play for, I was going to say my country, or I would say our country. The discussion whether it was Ireland or Scotland had to be made <laughs> eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was time. He just gave us time. And anyone out there who's now a parent who, and we've all been children, the vast majority of us were fortunate enough to grow up with parents. In retrospect, what do you, what would you have wanted most for them? Was it that fabulous new computer? Was it, you know, a lot about time out with your mates, etc.? Or was it spend time with me? And I know what it is. We all know what it is. It's so easy we've lost that. Whereas my dad didn't. <laughs> it's time and consideration. And it was never to push you on. And if I ever didn't want to go to training, which I did every day with them, until I started actually playing, and then I played almost every day, um, then I didn't need to do it. There was no stress, pressure. Do I go train? Yeah, all right. Um, I just kept on doing it for quite a long time. Whereas my older brothers, they maybe they faded away from it, although both of them were very good footballers anyway. But it's time. It's love. And I can't remember even if I used the words in the book back. I don't think I ever told my dad I loved him. We never did that sort of thing. I don't feel bad about it because we showed it to each other, everything we ever did. And my family are all like that. And it's a, I've been very fortunate. And I know the fortune of, can I, can I go on a slight sidestep here? Um, of course. You're talking about the books. I read a lot of books just now, and a lot of them are quite harrowing. And of course, a lot of the journey people have been on and the pain of a lot of things. Now, none of us get an easy life. And I'm not complaining about that, but... What was I kind of noticed at the end of it is the book only gets to um, 26, 27. It seems pretty happy, doesn't it? <laughs> it's, it's a really joyous kind of book. And yes, I, I've had difficult things in my life that have happened and, and certainly afterwards. But I remember putting it out and somebody said to me, so, so what's, the, what's the really bad thing that it's kind of hooked around? And I went, nothing. <laughs> it's just actually really joyous and really fun. And I, and that's, I, I don't feel any guilt about that. I just felt that, and it's maybe my personality as well. Or certainly, I grew into that person. So, you, your early years, football-wise, obviously dominated by Celtic. You, you trained with them, but but they didn't pick you up. But you went on to kind of star around the the Glasgow school scene. What what, what I want to fast forward to though is your your trial at Ipswich Town, and and the the conversation at the end of that week with Bobby Robson, because I love this idea. You know, two of my favourite figures in football, and and you know, you, you kind of imagine a manager at that time speaking to you in the way that Bobby did about what he did, and getting the answer that he got from you. Most managers would have just balked and thought wow where's this guy coming from but Bobby just enjoyed it it seems I, did, I mean I, it was really interesting because it was a kind of magical time when I was studying in Glasgow um, I hadn't any great interest in becoming a footballer Celtic had to get rid of me um, but I had a number of people trying to or saying no no you've, you've got to go through these trials and I'm saying well why go for a trial I don't want to succeed <laughs> but the idea of going somewhere and having a few days away and having a bit of fun Oh, yeah, I'm okay with that. So I went down to Ipswich and two or three other boys in Glasgow came. But I was small, you know, and I was like kind of really skinny, you, you know, and I, they put me with under 13s or something. 
14s or whatever. Anyway, by the end of the week, I'm playing with the first team. I'm training with the first team because I've done too well at each level and I've just zoomed me through the levels. And I'm playing against Terry Butcher, who he didn't he did know he was playing against his kind of cousin, inverted commas, which is, again, people who don't know me are kind of going, what? You, you know, Terry? But Terry and I know this. And then afterwards, it was, you know, it, it took us out of his office. And you know when you've done well. You're perfectly aware when you've done well. And the kind of first teamers were all kind of looking at each other and winking at each other, going, he's taking the mick out of some of us. And you shouldn't be doing that. Remember, Ipswich were a top, top team. By the way, youngsters listening now, Ipswich Town, do not ignore. This was a top European class club. It could get to European finals eventually, win leagues. I mean, I mean players like Murin and Tyson, and I think, don't know if they'd quite been there, but Eric Gates, what a player he was. He was extraordinary. Um, and John Walk was there. I mean, I, I remember that team, you know, and, and everybody would, not just Ipswich fans, everybody would. Of course, Bobby Robson's the manager. And then in, at his office at the end of it, and he, he could see he was suffering, you know, having to say, I don't think I can take you on because I've got this lad, Eric Gates. And I'm thinking, well, that's all right. I wouldn't have come anyway. And he's <laughs> like, what? <laughs> and then he just, what, why? And I just explained my attitude towards life and happiness and what I was doing with my life. And he, he just sat and just leaned back in his chair and smiled and went, yeah. And was, of course, there's a great corollary of it. Three years later, he provides me of, uh, I think it was player of the month for me in the, the top level in England. And he's no idea it's that same wee guy. <laughs> but he was lovely. And then he then picked me for, for England, for the English League against the rest of the world at Wembley. And he still didn't know it was that wee guy. <laughs> so he didn't want to be a footballer. So there's, I love the crossovers. And to be honest, there's only some of them given here because it goes on longer. You come across these people again. It's like characters. And you, 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 you some of them, you, I, I hope, Matt, you, you and I know each other very well. And you'll know some of the stories, but I hope not all of them because people jump in and out and come from nowhere. And they, I love that, that people go, well, you knew him. You can't. How did that work? And it's a lovely thing about the, the way I live my life at the time, and still do. I basically talk to everyone I ever meet. I love spending time. I take chances going places. I try to learn, and I listen. And I've, you end up meeting the most amazing, strange, interesting people in the most amazing, strange, interesting places. And uh, then you write about them eventually. <laughs> well, one of those uh, crossover characters who, who'd appear throughout your life is Craig Brown, and, and it was him who who basically persuaded you to sign for for Clyde on the promise that you could continue your studies and earn thirty quid a week while you were doing it. Yeah, and what's not to love about that? You know, because <laughs> I didn't want to be a professional, but if you're paying me thirty quid, and again, it feels like nothing now. But I mean, as a student, you know, you, that would get you. When albums were four ninety nine at a time. That's how I gauged it. So I got to play football. So it was the third tier of Scottish football. And you're thinking, well, I'll go and have fun. But it's I thought at the time it was a kind of accentuated boys club thing. <laughs> but it was professional, but there was no consideration of becoming a pro. Um, and for the first two or three months, um, I went there and two or three of my teammates came as well. I mean, that's a great story. We won't tell it just now in a bit of... Other clubs were interested in me when, when I was at the boys' club, Garkosh Rangers in particular, which is a ridiculous story. <laughs> um, but then I, I cannot, it was, there was a wee moment where I nearly then walked away again because 
right at the start, I went training with the Clyde team. And then after two weeks, I'm thinking, well, I'm, I'm not arrogant, but I should be playing. <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, for training here, I should be playing, shouldn't I? Um, and it kept me on the bench. I mean, in retrospect, it was nice when he put me right on the bench right away for the first team, you know, within a week or two. Drove me nuts. And my memory of it was that went on for month after month after month. And then I looked back into the records and it was only a few weeks. <laughs> and then when he let me loose, I just went wild. So I was having the perfect life then. I was playing football because I loved it. And this is the underlining thing to anyone. I probably love playing football as much, if not more, than anyone else. The pure joy of it. But then I don't want to be a footballer. And even in some of the people I've talked to when talking about the book, they kind of glaze over and go, what? <laughs> but to me, it makes perfect sense. Play football for the joy and the love of the creativity. And if you ever see me playing, you kind of get that was what it was all about. There's no reason to do the other stuff, the fame stuff, unnecessary. The wealth, that would be nice, but who cares? As long as you've got enough to get by, a little bit of a left and that's a thing. And uh, it's, it's kind of, I, for me, it's perfectly normal. I understand it isn't the same for absolutely everyone else. So, yeah, 30 quid a week. Yeah, I can go to a film. I can get my girlfriend. I can do all the things I want to do, and I can continue the studies. But um, I kind of blew it by doing slightly too well and got player of the year for the league that season, aged 17, 18. Um, and then Chelsea come in. And the next line's supposed to be, and everything else is history. Except I didn't. I said, no, I'm not going to Chelsea. <laughs> it kind of shocked everyone around as well. So my little sister said to me, well, you've called that book The Accidental Footballer. That's rubbish. You would always love football. And I'm like, that's my wee sister I'm going to explain it to. And uh, the proof is in. No, I turned out Chelsea for a year. So that's, that's proof, isn't it? <laughs> You're not desperate to be a footballer. Do you think that because obviously it was it was because you were enjoying your studies so much not not just the studying but obviously the lifestyle around that and meeting kind of like minded people do you think if it hadn't have been Chelsea that you would have turned down say if it was Ipswich I'm just thinking about the the appeal of the London lifestyle as much as the appeal of playing for Chelsea might have been what drew you in and eventually made you say yes I, I don't know that's a good question um, I'm not going to retrofit it I'll tell you the exact truth. It was just logic. And I'd, I'd love it to be something better than that. I would love it to be heart and soul. My first strip I ever wore was a Chelsea strip. Mm. And of course, Ipswich would have felt perfect for me because every team I played for in England wore blue and white, much to my father's chagrin. <laughs> um, but no, I think what happened is I'd played in the Euro Championships uh, under 18s and I'd, we'd win it as Scotland and I'd get played in a tournament and you know, beating teams with like, the Dutch with Van Bast and whatever happened to him, no idea. <laughs> um, and then it was Mexico City the next year for the World Youth Championships. And I just wanted to go because one of my other utter loves was travel. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, I get to go to Mexico playing the Azteca and they're paying me and it's for Scotland. And I'm thinking, I want to do that. But of course, I'll miss all my exams at the end of the second year of the degree. And I just, I just logic it out as you do, you know, it's like that movie, The Martian, think it, you know, just figure it. So I figured it out, which was sit all the, the exams on reset in the August, um, go over to Mexico. 
go back to Chelsea and say, and this time say, all right, I'll come. I'll sign a two years. Ask the, the authorities if I can have a two year sabbatical. And then I've got the best of both worlds. I can go and hang about in London for a couple of years. Um, it would be nice down there. I could play a bit of football, pay me a few quid. It wasn't a lot. Had that been Ipswich saying that, I may have done the same thing, I'll be honest with you. Yeah, okay, it was Ipswich. But, you know, I, I knew, oddly enough, I knew the area. Uh, I knew Lowestoft very well. Um, I'd cut family, as you say, Terry and all that sort of stuff. I had a new family down there. So it was okay and it's a beautiful place. So I've never thought about it before, Ben. Um, uh, that's a brilliant question. The answer is, yeah, I probably would have played Ipswich. Huh? Euros are here, and you'd better make the most of them because they only come around every four, five years. So if your bookie isn't making you feel special, then maybe it's time to find a new one. Yep, not so much carpe diem as carpadium. Yeah? If the grass is greener on the other side, come and play on it. If your bookie's not giving you the best rewards, switch and you'll get a completely free £5 bet builder on all England's group games. Paddy Power. Pretty much bet builder bets only, men. Two plus legs online exclusive must have previously deposited to avail. T's and C's apply. 18 plus begambleaware.org. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. I never planned for this book to come out the week that <laughs> Chelsea <laughs> Somebody said to me, um, somebody said to me, have you had a good week? And I went, uh, well, apart from going to the Champions League final, getting the best seat in the house, getting paid for it, <laughs> Chelsea winning it. By the way, I've got, I'll show you, Mike, you can see this now. There's the, the programme. I've got the programme with me. I write in the program. <laughs> and uh, my book came out and then I came home and I opened the, the paper and it's in the top 10 bestsellers list. I'm like, oh, of the hardbacks released this week. And I went, yeah, it's not a bad week. Yeah, it's all right. Like, it's just, <laughs> a purely personal level, honestly. You, you can't, it's, I've had one of those weeks. And, and, I, and, I, and by the way, that's before I even think, I went to the party, the players' party afterwards, and you're sitting by the cup. And it was honestly, you will look back in your life. Um, how many days or weekends will you actually remember that weekend? You know, 30 years on. I've just had one of those weekends, and so has every other Chelsea fan. And it's uh, it's fantastic for us. It's fantastic for the club. And it's, I mean, this has just been a great chance having the book now. Again, underline. Pure fluke. <laughs> just happened to come out. How did I know we were going to win the Champions League? I mean, really. <laughs> but it's come out and having the opportunity now to share it with the Chelsea fans all that time and, and say to them, look, this is what it felt like. This is how I felt about you. 
this is how I feel about the club. Here's the weird things that happened. <laughs> I just love, I love the fact that it's all came together on that. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. And and I, I would have loved to have been in Porto, obviously, but but I was in West London and coming out of Stamford Bridge on Saturday night and seeing that release of emotion, obviously at winning the Champions League, but I think a lot about people just getting to be together and enjoy celebrating something was um, was pretty magnificent. Um, I, w- I want to talk about what happened post-Chelsea and your move to Everton, but just briefly on, on Scotland and your Scotland career, you, you mentioned the under-18 European Championship win in 82 feels to me like that was almost the peak of your Scotland career, maybe, because there's a lot of kind of a day late and a dollar short in, in you know, missing out on 86 when Fergie didn't pick you. And then again in 1990, and, and then we get to Euro 92 and you're kind of limited by an injury that you suffered in a friendly. And it was almost nearly, but not quite. Yes, if you look upon it that way, but I don't. <laughs> my attitude is very much, what, you're letting me play for my country? <laughs> yeah. I scored five goals. I've made is probably double that. Um, I mean, st- st- statisticians these days can just twist anything. I had 15 starts and scored five goals. Come on, that's all right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you add assists onto that, the numbers were good. In those days, it was actually hard to get uh, a lot of caps because there weren't as many games. It's much, much easier these days. Um, I'll be honest with you, Scotland had a good team. <laughs> That guy, Douglas, was all right. He wasn't bad, you know, and other players. Um, just when it was my time, really coming in, because it was Gordon Strachan was ahead of me and Cooper, David Cooper, but really super players and a lot of good strikers and midfielders. And then it was just coming on to my time. And uh, Scotland dropped wingers. They started playing 5-3-2. And no wide players except for wingbacks, fullback, really just fullbacks. So the only time I'm going to get a game then is come on a sub and be the kind of the, the door opener, the locksmith. Um, but I, don't, I, I just, it's, it's a classic line. It's not what your country can do for you, it's what you can do for your country. One cap would have been fine. 28 was really good. I'll be honest with you, and I, I, I say this to a lot of people, it's, I have that different attitude of, I didn't go to Italian 90. I thought I probably should have. I was playing well enough then. And I was playing Everton. I was at the top of my game and all that sort of stuff. But if I had to be sitting on the bench, I'd rather give that to somebody else. I'm not interested in that. I want to play. And if, and if I go there and I, I even get 10 minutes at a World Cup, for some people that's wow. If it's me, I'm thinking, if I don't have an impact or I don't enjoy it and I have to spend six weeks or eight weeks away from my family for no real apparent reason, I'm not going to cry about it. I got upset about it. So it shocks a lot of people for my love of football that had absolutely no negative effect. None at all. And I'm not hiding it. I'll tell you if it did. Lots of things it did upset me, but that didn't. So the Scotland career, brilliant. 28 goals. And uh, if you get a chance to win against Estonia, that wasn't bad. Well, there'll be people listening who won't remember you as a player. David Silver's a name that comes up a few times in the book. Eddie Hazard too. And I heard you recently, an even kind of more modern reference point or a more recent one, Eberiche Eze. What is it about him and him and you that you think are kind of kindred in a footballing sense? Well, there's certain things I've seen in certain players through the years. I'm not saying that you're as good as them, but you understand the thinking processes. And, and Eden had a particular thing where... You know, the first a player's coming to tackle him, but he knows he's beaten them. He's not reached them yet, but he knows he's beaten them. He's already trying to manipulate his body in a certain way to put the next guy uh, 
out of um, his comfort zone or certainly off balance. Um, and Edmund was brilliant at that. But I could see before he beat the first guy what he was ready to do with the second because they've done all that stuff. So there's a kindred feeling of, yeah, I get that. Um, you know, but he did it brilliantly more often at world-class level and all the rest of it. So I'm not saying I'm as good as him. Um, certainly Eze does exactly the same, uh, exactly the same. Uh, but he has to add other things to his game. It's a shame he's got a really bad injury now, which we'll find out if he comes back is good. But he's the best and certainly in, the, in England at taking round players like that, without a doubt. You know, and as people will say, Whoa, what about so-and-so and so-and-so? And I'm talking a very specific skill. And Eze is unbelievable. And I've talked to her, I was talking to Aidan and the other day, and I said, what do you, you, you know about him? And he goes, nobody like him. He's unbelievable. You know, and, he, and pros don't say that about other pros unless they know and they've seen it and he says, he's unbelievable. So I'm not, I'm not getting that one wrong happily because I'm only watching now. But people who have played alongside them just say, wow. Um, the silver one's more so. He's, he's the player since I retired that I've most related to. Um, he was definitely the style that I would try to play, the, the way I played, the way I wanted to play um, because I was always stuck in the wing, but it was a thing from reading the book. I'd never really played in the wing <laughs> before I came to Chelsea. It was a bit of a shock to me. <laughs> I didn't like it, uh, but you have to learn. Um, but if you look at the modern player now, you know, David Silva, what he did for all that time, the intelligence, the, you know, the, the assists to the assist, all that sort of stuff, knowing what you're doing. Um, that was exactly it. And to be honest, that's exactly how I tried to play. And, you know, almost exactly the same height, centre of gravity. I was quite quick, but not lightning. You know, that was always the same. There's so much about him that I just thought, that was it. He's the closest I've ever found to the way I was trying to do it. There's so much in the book that, that we haven't touched on, but but time is against us. I, I want to talk briefly about Everton, though. And, and in typical Pat fashion, part of the reason that you ended up signing there uh, was because of a particularly impressive mixtape put together by manager yeah. Colin Harvey's daughter. Mel, who's still in touch with me, she tweeted me the other day. And when I DJ, something Mel comes as well. Um, yeah, I just got, I, I agreed to go because I was just about to sign for PSG. I wanted to stay at Chelsea, but they couldn't, struggle, wouldn't keep me. So uh, I think they needed the money, but also they were changing direction. And it was, it was suited us both in the end. Uh, it broke my heart. Um, I went to Everton. Uh, it's a long story, which I'll let readers read. But to get to the pile, I jump in Colin Harvey's car at Manchester Airport. And he's there with Terry Darricott. And uh, the radio starts playing it. So absolutely cracker of a song comes on. I thought, oh, music's good up here. Maybe four songs in, I'm thinking, nah, something's fishy here. You, you don't hear the Cocteau Twins, like, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> uh, what's going on here? And of course, it's Colin Harvey's daughter had gone and made a mix it of stuff that she knew I liked. And he just put it on in the background to make me feel good. And I thought, uh, I kind of like that. That's just a cool thing to do. I'd actually met Colin for three or four minutes and I thought, you had me at high, you know. Brilliant man, lovely man, honest. I look for honesty first. See money and all that stuff. They had like four, fifth, six. I'm looking for a good pitch, good players, <laughs> a chance to enjoy the game, a good crowd. Uh, they're all my tick list at the top. So, uh, but Mel did that and that certainly helped. Now I went straight to Colin's house and I met Colin's wife and his three daughters, one sadly no longer with us. And uh, I just thought, I love Colin, but I actually think they're even nicer. <laughs> so I kind of uh, 
gravitate towards good people. Um, the, the other sides of it are also a wee bit secondary. And I think when we are taking our last gasps in this earth, we won't look back at how much is in your bank account or anything like that. You think of the good people. And uh, he was one of them. And they were. And a lot of the people that are in this book that you read, it's them people. And uh, there's good stories about them, I think. Yeah, there's some fabulous ones. I mean, I feel a, a, there's a sort of comparison maybe to make with your time at Everton and your time at Scotland in that, you know, you lost those finals in, in 89, obviously the FA Cup final when when the trophy that year wasn't the big thing and, and the Simod Cup final too. And and you got the, the injury shortly after you arrived and then Howard Kendall comes in and, and you're very much oil and water, you two as characters. But but there's no sense of bitterness or regret at that. It, it's more what comes across in the book as, hey, I got to play for Everton Football Club, the People's Football Club. I had a great time. Uh, yeah, hopefully a little bit more uh, beautiful put than that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, you're absolutely right. He's growing up and brought up with the attitude of there's a lot of victimization and self victimization around the world at the moment. And people who have got fabulous things in their life telling you how terrible a life they've got. And that's fine if that's the way you feel. You know, where, where I come from, you can have a really tough start and really hard things happen. And I'm thinking, can I really complain when the guy around the corner from me, you know, lost his brother a few years ago, or somebody's lost somebody else, or you have some sort of disability or that. And I'm going, oh, terrible me. No, I'm trying to make the best out of it. You know, there's only one life here, you know. None of us are getting out of this alive, as someone recently said to me, which I loved. So... You, you've got a choice a lot of the time to take situations either positively or negatively. You, you do, not always because there's mental health problems and all that and difficulties and we all have bad times. But you can make a choice and you can try to be as happy as you possibly can. Um, and the sadness is the second book shows that much more difficult times and stuff that people don't know about uh, like Annabelle and I's lives that are hard. And you have to do that, um, and you you will. But it didn't stop my voice being as positive about every situation I'm in that, that I have been. Um, so I'm afraid it is, yeah, I've got to play forever. It's great, it's brilliant. I'd like it to be better. But it's, you know, it's like somebody saying, oh, I'm a multimillionaire, but I wish I was a billionaire. You'd say, shut up, right? <laughs> so that that's kind of my angle it's not complex but it's it's, it's kind of helped me it's helped me as well to be perfectly honest when when you and i first started commentating together in 2011 12 i used to get incredibly anxious before the games and, and really stress about it and your attitude towards it just really brought me back down because it, there's a real sense of perspective about it and i remember one time we did a europa league game and, and the referee was not having a good game and making a show of himself and you said this is not about you, mate. This is about the 22 people on the field. And I, for some reason, I was able to just put that into, into my head and say, oh, actually, what I'm doing is not particularly important here. We should just enjoy watching this game and talking about it because it's the greatest thing in, in the world. Um, Pat, there's so much that we haven't touched upon. Uh, brilliant stories about playing friendlies in Baghdad. Uh, Galatasaray <laughs> kind of coercively trying to force you to sign for them before you end up going to Tranmere. 
And there's going to be so much more to come in, in parts two. And I'm guessing part three mm. as well, because you, you've got an incredible story to tell. Uh, the Accidental Footballer, it's, it's available now. It's a real passion project, clearly. I raced through it in, in a couple of days. I know it was a long time that, that you wrote it now, but but now you've had some time to look back on it. it there must be a big sense of pride that, that you've been able to get it done, that it's been so well received and, and that you've been able to tell your story in the way that you wanted to. Do you know what? It's very, very weird. It's a slight dichotomy for me. I can't publicise myself. I can't say, hey, look at me, look at what I do. It's so against my home, who I am as a person. But when you've got a book out, you want people to read it. And there are very few things in my entire life, and I mean playing football and everything, I can say, I actually am really pleased with that. I've written every word. I've, I'm happy with the way it looks and sounds. There are very few things I would change about it. Um, if you don't like it, I'm, you know, you don't like it. But I do, I am actually really pleased with it. And that's a slight embarrassment for me to say it. But I do think it's okay. And the reaction has been lovely. It's been absolutely fantastic. And I have one thing about it. I really want anyone who reads it to have enjoyed it. And so far, absolutely so good. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really happy about it. And uh, I, I, I love writing. So uh, you're right, it ain't going to stop <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I can't wait to read part two. This, I mean, we haven't even got to director of football stage and, and everything else. All, you, all your work that you've done with the PFA is, is covered in book one. That's fascinating too. Uh, but it's a great read. The Accidental Footballer, available from actual bookshops and anywhere else that you can pick up books now. And Pat, thanks so much for your time today and, and best of luck with it. Look forward to speaking to you again about part two. I will speak to you soon. Another time.